Lime Ninja Nation, how are you all doing today? It is Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023, and this is episode number 289, I believe. Give or take one. Math is not an exact science. Please remember to like, share, subscribe, and hit the notification button below so you know exactly when we're going to go live, because right now, our schedule has been a little bit iffy. Our schedule, including you on this. However, it's it's my schedule, so I apologize. I missed last week. I'm trying to fix this. I think I think I need some friends to help me go live. So we'll see if Lauren can join me. And I'm still looking for Dave to talk about his cartoons, but well, that's been a tough negotiation. Anyway, so glad to have you here. We have a great show for you, and it's a special show. It's a replay of Dr. Nicola's Lyme update that she gives for practitioners, but I think my audience can handle the technical end of things. And the topic was the gut and Lyme. And as so many of you know from personal experience, Lyme disease can do a tap dance on your intestines, and that is not the most fun thing in the world. But before we get into that, I want to share you some fun stuff coming up with the Lime Warrior website and nonprofit. And they've got a virtual 5K. So I'd love for you to participate in this. And I'm going to share with you a quick bit I did with Lauren Lovejoy from LimeWarrior.us. And she's going to tell you all about it. So here we go. Lauren, welcome back to Lime Ninja Radio. I'm so excited to have you back, especially because we've been practicing this particular section for, oh, a week now. Well, we're getting good at it by now. You know, getting, tenth try is the, the charm. <laughs> we're, we're getting really good at it. See, what people don't know back home is that we got on a Zoom call. Well, actually, StreamYard. That's the platform that we record on. It got on, and I forgot to press record. So we had these amazing conversations that are just lost to the world. You know, it's kind of like the city of Atlantis or something. You just never really know, but you're pretty sure that was really awesome. It was the most profound thing I think we have ever said in our whole lives and we'll never say it again. <laughs> it's like those dreams, right? You wake up and you had, and, and you kind of remember it at, in the middle of the night and you go, Oh, I'm never going to, this dream is so awesome. I'm never going to forget this, forget this great idea. And you wake up in the morning, you were like, uh, what was that again? Yeah. I just credit us as being just, brilliant, but it's something lost to history and we'll just have to suffer with that moving forward. <laughs> it, it, it hits, hits me here. <laughs> but before we go too far sideways, I want to talk to you about, hang on, watch this. The Lime Warrior Virtual 5K. We're so tech savvy. Wow. <laughs> so tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> You're blinded, so. blinded by the tech. So for those of you on podcasts, I just pulled up a, uh, an image of like a Instagram ad or Facebook ad that has the Lime Warrior Virtual 5K on it. So for us, this is high tech. So forgive us as we cheer ourselves from being we were stunned in the silence we that's right total, total silence there <laughs> yes awesome so yeah every year limeware hosts a virtual 5k and the whole point is to get out share with your community about what's going on 
for anybody who doesn't want to run, you can definitely just sign up and hang out on your couch or do a walk, like whatever. That's why we do virtual. We understand that not every patient is ready to hit the pavement. And this year we have multiple other locations. We have Michigan, Illinois, Texas, and Iowa locations joining us this year. Wait a minute. I'm going to scroll to it. So if you go to the Lyme Warrior homepage, that's LimeWarrior.us, scroll all the way to the bottom. Click on the, happy, the Learn More underneath the Happy Children Running. Children are always happy running. Exactly. And you they will have more see, stamina. <laughs> exactly. You will see the list of events. And just click on that, and there you will have where you can sign up for each individual event. So in addition to the virtual 5K, why don't you go over the other in-person opportunities to network and have fun and raise awareness. Yeah, so on May 6th, we have John City, Texas, which is run by a gal that's been on the team for years. She's amazing. Sharon is going to be bringing a lot of entertainment outside the Austin area. So if you're near there, can't recommend that one enough. Um, first one we're having in Wisconsin in the Greenville area. So I am super, super excited about that one as Wisconsin is tick endemic and no one wants to talk about it. So thank you so much. Carrie is out there generating probably the first like major Lyme event that I have heard of in Wisconsin. So stoked about her coming out. Another one that we have is in the Chicago Metro. It's in Winfield, Illinois, which is going to be on the 13th as well. Dean is this amazing caregiver. His wife has been sick for a very, very long time. And so they are coming together in the Chicago Metro to raise awareness. And last one run by an amazing gal, Tina. She does not have Lyme, but she heard about her friend's story and struggle and said, I am going to make the biggest Lyme awareness in Iowa ever. I think we all know it might be the first and only, but, <laughs> but with hopefully her not only. The not only just first <laughs> one so far first yeah, annual. she's doing amazing she's gotten her city hall involved she has gotten her local media involved she has really like blown it up in what some of us would consider the middle of nowhere but apparently there's a lot of people there <laughs> so we're really excited to get out in the midwest and generate some awareness there all right when somebody from western virginia is calling someplace in illinois the middle of nowhere Pot kettle. Pot kettle, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, I have a significant metro like 15 minutes down the road. You may have never heard of it, but there's people here also. <laughs> what, Blacksburg? They yeah. have a traffic light? We have, we have, we have a university. Of course we got traffic lights. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's fantastic. So just head on over to LimeWarrior.us, scroll to the bottom of the page, click on that learn more button underneath the happy children running and then choose the event. And remember the point of this is not to win a medal. The point of it but might be can. to win a t-shirt <laughs> though, but you can, right? The point of this is to start conversations about Lyme disease. So anytime a group of people get together to run for a cause, local newspapers eat this stuff up because there's nothing better than a picture of happy children happily running. For yep. a good get cause. Get that conversation started. Use the children if you need to. Everybody get their smiles out there, but starts a conversation, and that's what's exactly. important. Exactly. And if you can't get out, you can do the same thing. You know you have some running friends. We all have those friends. For some reason, they love to run. We shouldn't judge them, but you can invite them to participate in the virtual 5K. 
It's a great cause and a great way to start a conversation and get that awareness going about Lyme disease. Come on, y'all. Join us and be part of the solution. All right, Lauren, you got anything else? Nope, that's all. You nailed it. Thank you so much for having me, McKay. All right, see you next week. All right, so that was my conversation with Lauren. You see I've got my Lime Warrior cap, rocking the green Lime Warrior cap. So please head on over, sign up, even if you can't run, even if you don't like to run like me, I've signed up. Support a good cause, get the numbers up, show that you care. And more importantly, this is all, I want to reiterate, can't say it enough, we need you to be part of the solution. We're fighting for the lives of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, if you start bringing in the entire world. And to do that, we need to do an end run around the IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of America, around the CDC, around the FDA, around the insurance companies. We've got to be the solution. We cannot wait. We cannot wait for the institutions to catch up. They're doing for Lyme disease what they did for other diseases that have been around and not so well managed. Take your pick, cancer, fibromyalgia, recent infections. They're not doing a good job. That's the bottom line. And it dawned on me recently, I was doing a PowerPoint presentation. You know, we talk about, oh, the tests missed 60%. Oh yeah, that's terrible. And we know that's terrible. So don't rely on the standard tests that are given to Lyme disease. They're just not good for lots of technical reasons. You know that. I don't have to explain that to you. But what I missed was that the IDSA trained doctors, the protocol they have for detecting Lyme disease is missing 90% of people. So where do I get that number from? Well, that number comes from the CDC. Each year, the CDC takes the number of reported cases of Lyme disease. And what do they do? They multiply it by 10. You know this. I knew this, but it didn't dawn on me. Maybe it dawned on you, but it didn't dawn on me. That means these doctors, bless their hearts. I love doctors. They're overworked. They're underappreciated. They're good people out there. The information they're getting is leading them to miss 90% of the cases of Lyme disease. Now, when people are sick, they don't avoid going to the doctor. They're going through the doctor's offices. They're just being missed. It's criminal. Think about this. In what profession is 90% miss rate acceptable? Could you do that at your job? Could any of your family members do that? I can think of one profession where it's acceptable. Matter of fact, if you do a little better than that, you're a superstar. And that is the international phenomenon known as soccer. <laughs> and all you Europeans who call it football, we had a chant. The U.S. had a chant during the World Cup about that. So it's soccer. Anyway, the point is somebody like Lionel Messi 
arguably the best player in the world, right? We have a nice argument over that, over Pint at the pub. Is he the best? He's darn close. Every time he shoots a soccer ball, he makes it in slightly higher than 10%, somewhere around 11%. I know this. I looked it up. So Lionel Messi, Lionel Messi, Lionel Messi is missing almost 90% of his shots, just like the medical system in the U.S. Now, the difference is Lionel Messi is an international superstar, best in the world of what he does. The IDSA-trained docs are terrible. But the IDSA puffs up his chest. They're like, yeah, we're so great. You've heard them. You've heard the stories. They actually say Lyme disease is hard to catch, easy to diagnose, and easy to treat. That's the official line. That's part of the reason why the doctors that the IDSA trains miss 90%. So my question for them, and the question you should have, has anybody at the IDSA crossed the street and talked to anybody at the CDC? Because the CDC is, CDC is saying, hey guys, you're missing 90%. We have to take your number and multiply it by 10. Think about that. What that means for you, your neighbors, your family. It's painful. Imagine if doctors in the ER missed 90% of heart attacks. It's criminal. It's not medicine. It's barbaric. So let's do a little bit of math. Don't be afraid. I know. I know. Nobody likes math. You're not supposed to do math <laughs> on a podcast. But here we go. We're going to tread where angels fear to tread. In 2021, the CDC estimated there are 476,000 cases of Lyme disease, which meant that 47,600 cases were reported. Okay, so if you do a little subtraction there, that means that 428,000 people in 2021, and that's just one year, just one year, 428,400 people as an estimate, were misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. That is a massive, massive problem. Where are those people? Hmm? People going around getting drugs for arthritis and they have Lyme disease. People going around getting heart transplants and they have Lyme disease. People going around suffering, not knowing, getting bounced from doctor to doctor, being told they're crazy, being told it's all in your head. Albert Einstein said, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we use to create them. Forrest Gump's mama said a little more plainly, she said, stupid is as stupid does. But you know what? This is what I like to say. The IDSA has committed a big time Lyme crime. So I want you to join me, be part of the solution. Talk to your neighbors, talk to your friends, be bold, stand up, be counted. We can't let the IDSA and their training win the day. It's too bad. They're wrong 90% of the time. 90% is terrible. I bet you're better at diagnosing Lyme than most docs out there. Guarantee it. Guarantee it. So get out there. Be bold. Speak up. You don't need an MD after your name to talk to your neighbors. 
to give them an opinion. Help them. The IDSA thinks they're Lyme superstars. They think missing 9% is acceptable. They think they're playing soccer like Lionel Messi, but they're not playing soccer. They're playing with lives, your family lives, your life, your friends' lives, the lives of people in your community. I'm done waiting. We need to do it now. Do it now. We can't wait another lifetime for the IDSA to figure this out. So I'm done waiting. So I want you to stay with me on this podcast, share it to people. We're going to change the world. We're going to do it now. You and I are going to get the message out there. That's what this is about. All right. I know that got a little intense there. I got pretty passionate. Try not to shout. Try to just show the intensity in my voice rather than yelling at you. I bet my, I bet my kids would have appreciated that over the years, but there you go. That's what you get learning to podcast. So this next section, we're going to get more into information. I'm going to share with you Dr. Nicola's presentation that she did on Lyme and the gut and how that affects. So if you know somebody who's been infected, infected and affected that way, infected and then affected in the gut, then this will be a great segment for you to learn from. And as a reminder, when this is all said and done, head on over to LimeWarrior.us and sign up for their 5K. All right, so I'm going to play this clip, and it starts with an introduction, how I met Dr. Nicola, and then we get deep into the technical aspects of this. So enjoy. If I can get it. So we're having issues here. It worked before. Let me remove it completely and start fresh. Cue up the file. You can hear my mouse click clacking away. I should get rid of my echo there. So we're not going to wait much longer than this. So thank you for being here on time. And we're going to get started. So I want to introduce... Dr. Nicola, briefly, we met when I was hosting my Lime podcast, Lime Ninja Radio. And have you ever had the experience where when you're talking to somebody and you just know that you're talking to somebody who knows what they're talking about? And that was my experience with Dr. Nicola, because I had talked to, let's see, we did couple hundred, 270 some episodes and talked to a lot of people who were claiming to be experts about Lyme disease or had the answer to Lyme disease. And then quite a few just patients who were just telling their stories. Dr. Nicola presents Lyme disease as a chess match, not as an answer. So you can understand everything about Lyme disease. You can know, know which way the pawn move, which way the rooks move, which way the bishop moves and the queen and the king, all the pieces but that doesn't make you a good chess player. What makes you a good chess player is getting out there and playing chess on the park bench for days and weeks and years on end. 
And that's what Dr. Nicola is doing. And she, she brings that experience and wisdom. And I think that's what we need more than anything else, because there is no easy answer. If there was an easy answer, we'd all be, we wouldn't be here talking about Lyme disease. So that's who Dr. Nicola is to me. And I'm turning her over to you. And we're going to talk about the gut and Lyme and how they interact. So Dr. Nicola, welcome. And thank you for being here. Thank you. And you're so welcome. It's great to be here. And thank you for joining us. Um, so yeah, like McKay said, we've known each other for a few years now. And I've been treating chronic Lyme for about 20 years in my practice, almost 20 years. 20 years in practice in September. And so um, I started out the first couple of years working a lot with autism spectrum disorders, and then it sort of just naturally morphed from there. And now I work with chronic Lyme and mycotoxin illness and, and things like that. So, um, so tonight, let me share my screen and we'll get rolling here. We are gonna have a little bit of discussion here. So let's share. All right, um, you seeing that okay? Yep, perfect. Um, so basically, yeah, we are on a mission to change the course of chronic Lyme disease by training nurses, coaches, naturopaths, naturopathic doctors, you name it, the open-minded healthcare practitioners so that more providers are at least Lyme familiar and Lyme friendly. But we also have, um, we have a system in place to train practitioners to become Lyme literate and very competent and confident in the treatment of chronic Lyme, no matter what their qualifications. So we have people who are nutritional coaches, we have people who are naturopaths, um, nurse practitioners. So it's, it's a group of people who are really committed and have the calling over their lives to uh, make a difference in the lives of people with chronic Lyme. And so just sort of give you a little bit of an overview, we are going to chat a little bit about the gut and Lyme disease and how um, Lyme can contribute to digestive issues and what other, some other associated issues relating to digestion. And then we're just going to kind of look at the overall picture of the, the environment of Lyme and what we need to be able to get people more help. So essentially with our Lyme Academy, we, um, we go through different levels as we are working with practitioners to empower them and educate them and train them up to be, um, to be of massive service to the chronic Lyme world. And so it's it's a very sort of, it's a linear approach, it's very crystal clear, and we are really proud of what we've put together um, because there is very little training out there um, and not just training, but mentoring um, for practitioners to learn more about Lyme. So that's kind of where we're coming from. So there's always different things coming out about, you know, the digestion and the microbiome, and there's so much more being learned about that. One of the things that we see in relation to chronic Lyme is always this conversation about, you know, antibiotic therapy and how damaging is antibiotic therapy to the gut. And I will touch on that a little bit in a few minutes, but, um, but there's also new science and new things coming out. So this article um, or this publication is talking about using protective drugs that can minimize the Im negative impact of antibiotics on the gut microbiome without affecting their ability to fight harmful bacteria. 
And some of these may be, you know, to combine antibiotics with anticoagulants or anti-inflammatory medications to protect the, the gut flora, the bacteria. And, you know, we never want to be just kind of looking at like, okay, now we're going to use a medication. Now we need a medication to um, offset the side effects of the medication. You know, that's a bit of a slippery slope of, of Western medicine. However, um, I will say that, you know, and I'm integrative, so I'm not on the team of like all antibiotics, nor am I on the team of like all natural therapy and antibiotics are from the devil. I'm very much in the team of like whatever works for that patient and we can match those worlds well. Um, and a lot of people I've worked with have got their life back from using antibiotic therapy. So it's just, it's interesting to me and exciting to find that firstly, there's more research on the microbiome and um and we're learning much much more or about that in general um but also that we're that there are people who are looking for like okay now how can we do this how can we give this therapy without damaging the microbiome um because we know how important the microbiome is to so many elements of our health so there's some interesting things going on um, here's from the Washington Post. Scientists identify thousands of unknown viruses in babies' diapers. They're actually studying dirty diapers um, to figure out like the microbiome in the infant gut and what, what things it contains, what bacteria, what viruses, like what does that mean? How does that impact us moving forward? So um, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the factors that um, that I see being related to, um, to, you know, the experience of chronic Lyme. And I might just, I might just stop sharing my screen for a minute, just so we can see each other more clearly. Um, but there's a few things to note with, with Lyme and digestive health. The first is that there are multiple possibilities for things that are impacting gut health. So it's not, you know, some people say, oh, it's just all about the microbiome or it's all about food intolerance or whatever, but it's a, it's a variety of different things. And these could be, these are very individual. So not all of these things are going to apply to everybody, but I'll run through the big ones that I see. So the first is that the pathogens, the tick-borne pathogens themselves can get into the gut and they can have a direct influence on gut function. So I was saying earlier that, um, that, you know, we sort of sometimes say as practitioners, we can say, oh, well, somebody's got, you know, digestive issues. We can't treat them yet until we sort of sort out the digestive issues. And the problem is if the Lyme or the Bartonella, which are the two main ones that I see affecting the gut, if they are, um, if they are playing a role, then putting off treating them is not going to help the gut, right? So at some point you have to treat the actual pathogen. And this is where I do like functional testing. And I realize from a patient standpoint, it can get expensive because a lot of it's independent labs. Um, but a lot of these things that I'm talking about here as, as being possible, um, having possible impact on the gut are testable. So if Borrelia is in your gut, is that testable? Not directly, no. But there are other tests that we can utilize um, to gather more information. So the first one is looking at the possibility of Borrelia and Bartonella particularly influencing the lower, the lower GI, more the intestines. 
Um, and then I see Babesia causing a lot of like nausea and stomach problems and like upper GI stuff. So that's number one is the, the pathogens themselves. The number two, I would say, is the impact of foods. So there are a couple of foods and food groups that can be more inflammatory for the digestive tract. I think the primary one would be gluten-containing foods. So gluten is a protein that's found in um, wheat, rye, and barley. Question mark oats because oats in and of themselves are gluten-free, but they, there's a lot of cross-contamination, so they have to be certified gluten-free oats. Um, but gluten is extremely inflammatory, and it can trigger autoimmunity in the body. So there are... Um, there's, there's a limited, well, what am I going to say? How am I going to say this? Not every food causes autoimmunity, right? So potentially any food could cause an immune reaction in a certain person. Um, and we see that happening both as like immediate obvious food um, allergies, but also as more like delayed hypersensitivities or intolerances to food. But gluten is quite unique in being able to trigger an autoimmune response. Um, gluten also increases uh, a substance called zonulin in the body. And zonulin contributes to leaky gut and also to this phenomenon now they're calling leaky brain. So zonulin makes the gut lining more permeable and also the blood-brain barrier more permeable, which is problematic because it allows for more toxins and other things to cross over into the brain, which is certainly not what we want. So the impact of foods, gluten intolerance from an autoimmune standpoint, and then, you know, IgG food sensitivities, which we can test for. We can do blood work for that and find out what foods people might be eating that's causing immune reactions and immune reactions are naturally going to lead to more inflammation in the body. And inflammation in the gut, we know those cytokines, the chemical mediators of inflammation, can travel through the body and they can travel to the brain as well. So inflammation in the gut can cause brain issues, cognitive issues, mood dysregulation, all kinds of different things. Um, I also see other foods like sugar, for example. Processed sugar is going to feed yeast. And so when people are eating high sugar diets, especially when people are on antibiotics as well, then we end up with the possibility of candida issues or yeast overgrowth. Okay, so sugar is very immune suppressive. There's no good reason to eat sugar. It serves no purpose. In fact, sugar is more of a drug than it is a food. It's extremely addictive. And the food industry knows that, and that's why they use it, to get people hooked on, on their food. Um, but there is no good reason to eat processed sugar or refined sugar at all. Whereas, you know, things like maple syrup or honey, I mean, that's sort of more naturally occurring. There's, yes, it's sugary. Um, it's got naturally occurring sugars, but at least it has some nutritional value, right? It has some redeeming factors, whereas, you know, white processed sugar has zero redeeming factors. So, so that's all still category two is like foods, gluten, dairy products tend to be quite inflammatory. Um, and, and then also the, the impact of sugar. The next category I would say is yeast overgrowth or candida. 
I just thought of another one. I'm making a note of it so I don't forget. Um, candida overgrowth. So candida um, are naturally occurring in all of this. We all have candida in our gut. And that's fine. It's when it becomes overgrown that it that it's more problematic. I have found historically that people with chronic Lyme are more prone to candida regardless of antibiotic use. Right? So even people who have not taken antibiotics for Lyme and do not have a big history of antibiotic use still tend to be um, vulnerable to, to candida overgrowth and also SIBO. Yes, McKay, to your point, SIBO as well. Um, it's partially because of, you know, immune dysregulation, immune suppression. Um, for some people, it may be diet related, too much sugar, too many carbs. Obviously, a history of antibiotics is a risk factor. But essentially, anything that causes inflammation in the gut can lead to candida overgrowth. So whenever I see, and I do a lot of testing through microbial organic acid tests through Great, Great Plains, whenever I see yeast overgrowth as an issue, I know typically there's some there's something else going on. There's some other like causative factor that we have to try to figure out. So again, if someone's gluten intolerant but doesn't know it and is eating lots of gluten, or does know it and is eating lots of gluten, then you know that can make them more prone to candida overgrowth. Um, if they've got you know other things going on like mold, which I'll talk about next, um, that can give rise to to candida overgrowth too. And that can cause a lot of like gas and bloating, diarrhea, constipation, um, but also systemic issues, fatigue, foggy brain, um, itchy skin, like so many different things. So the next one that I would cite is mold colonization in the gut. And I can tell you 10 years ago, I had no clue how prevalent mold toxicity was in people with chronic Lyme. And, um, and testing back then was really expensive and there wasn't a whole lot known about it. I think Dr. Shoemaker really was one of the pioneers in this field. And while I think that um, the Shoemaker protocol is, is quite rigid in my view, it's very clearly defined, it's quite limited. And I think we have lots of other information now that can expand on our view of mold toxicity and how to test for it and how to address it. Um, but you know, now with the advent of more reasonable testing and more options for testing, um, I now try to do mycotoxin testing on all of my patients. And it's shocking how many people are impacted by, by mold toxicity. So bearing in mind, mold toxicity is very different to mold allergy, right? One can be allergic to molds without having mold toxicity, like the toxins in the body. What I'm talking about now is more mycotoxin illness where a person has accumulated elevated levels of mold toxins in their system and it's you know wreaking havoc in their body. And certainly that can impact the gut as well. And you know, Dr. Shaw, who's the um, scientific director, whatever you, whatever his role is with Great Plains, he's the head honcho of Great Plains and he's a brilliant, brilliant scientist. And he really stresses that a lot of people with most majority of people with mycotoxin illness will have a colonization of mold in the gut and will have a colonization of mold in the sinuses. And so both of those things need to be addressed along with, you know, your general detox support with, you know, glutathione and ALA or NAC or, um, and binders. We definitely need to like try to grab those mold toxins and pull them out of the body. 
but you have to kill off those mold spores too. And so um, there are natural ways to do that with different herbal blends. Um, but sometimes it also calls for an antifungal medication like itraconazole, for example, um, can be very effective to do like a 30 day course or even a 60 day course of that. So then the other thing that impacts gut function, obviously potentially is antibiotic use. And um, that usually comes in two different forms. One is just an irritation of the gut in general. And that tends to be more a side effect of certain antibiotics. Some are easier on the gut than others. Um, doxycycline, for example, I'd say is one of the trickier ones, especially when taken on an empty stomach, which we always advise taking it with food but when taken with an empty stomach, um, it can be very irritating and it can give rise to more like a gastritis, inflamed, you know, irritated digestive tract. The second element or the second uh, mechanism there is the impact of antibiotics on the microbiome. So the, the, um, the bottom line is, and the fact is that antibiotics will kill off some of the good bacteria, some of the good flora in the gut and that can cause um, side effects, digestive side effects. And so the, the key there is prevention. The key is um, good quality, multi-strain, high potency probiotics. It is also, and probiotics always have to be separated from antibiotics by two hours. Um, another key is diet. So if if people are take, if people are on antibiotics, they are well served keeping their diet low in carbohydrates, eliminate refined sugars altogether. Um, most will eliminate alcohol because a lot of alcohol is kind of sugary too. Um, and so you know, so it's the patient has sort of their role to play. You know, it's their responsibility to take care on the dietary front. And then sometimes we do antifungals along with antibiotics, whether that's like a natural biocidin type blend, oregano oil, something like that, or even a prescription like nystatin. Um, nystatin is ex it's extremely safe. It's non-toxic. It doesn't even go to the liver. So it adds pills per day, but it doesn't add any additional like liver toxicity or stress. Um, probiotics, I tend to use a multi-strain um, probiotic about a hundred billion would be my average dose per day. Um, at least two hours apart from antibiotics. Some people we go up to 200 billion. I haven't found I necessarily have to go higher than that. Um, and then for some people, some people do better on a soil based probiotic. And so there's one called core biotic that I like by research nutritionals. Um, and people with SIBO, um, tend to do a little bit better on soil based. I find so it depends on what else is going on there. But otherwise, just strip, just frankly, from an antibiotic standpoint, I do find the, the multi-strain probiotics. Um, and sometimes I rotate with, with spore-based probiotics as well. But the important thing is consistency, quality. They did a study once. I can't, it was a few years ago, I couldn't cite it. But I remember reading a study of probiotics bought in health food stores and eight out of 10 did not contain what they claimed to contain. So only two out of 10 actually passed the test for what they said was on the label. Now, there are some things that, you know, you can't really go too far wrong. Like it's kind of hard to ruin B vitamins. And there's some things that, that sure, go to the health food store, get that. But this is where, um, you know, practitioners, and I think rightly so, 
can be very fussy about which probiotics we're giving to our patients because they can be sensitive. And so the probiotics, that is not just the patient. Patients can be sensitive too, but the probiotics can be sensitive to heat. It's all, you know, the quality control is really important. Um, in terms of the gastritis part, you know, again, some of that can be managed with diet and other things that I found to be calming are like aloe vera juice or um, even an essential oil blend called Digest Zen that I love that has helped a lot of people be able to manage their antibiotics. Um, comes either in an oil or soft gels and it's, it's made by a company called doTERRA and Sometimes I'll have people take one soft gel with each dose of antibiotics and that makes all the difference between like them feeling like their gut is irritated versus tolerating their antibiotics. So sometimes just a simple natural adjunct can go a long way to, to helping to facilitate the protocol. Um, parasites would be another possibility on my list of things that can impact gut function and um, I see it quite commonly that people like chronic Lyme patients often do have parasites. Now there's different kinds of parasites. Um, there's microscopic ones like cryptosporidium and uh, blastocystis and giardia. And then yours, there's more the helminths, which are the worms. Um, I have a lot of patients and this is the mystery that's yet unsolved. I can't, I don't have the answer. McKay knows exactly where I'm going with this. I have a lot of patients that are like, oh my gosh, I'm passing this and this came out and this goes in my poop and taking pictures and sending it to my, to, to my staff on email. And what is this? And we're like, um, you know, is it a worm? Is it biofilm? Is it part of the intestinal lining? Like, it's just, we don't know. And so we sort of discuss that. Um, I think, I think there are definitely cases where it is worms um, for sure, but sometimes I don't know. We don't know all the time. So, I mean, looking at parasites as a possibility, um, clues may be symptoms flaring around the full moon. That's often a parasite thing. Um, but yeah, like, and there's all these theories about like Lyme being, um, what's the word, like embedded in parasites. Um, and so at some point I typically do a parasite cleanse with my patients. Um, and I think cell, cell core, the cell core protocol, I'm not a, I'm not a huge advocate of the entire protocol because I think from a standpoint of chronic Lyme like there's a lot a lot a lot to take that doesn't touch the Lyme it's good support stuff it's good detox it's good parasites but it's not like it's not specific enough to Lyme until the later phases so I don't use their whole protocol as it's mapped out I pick and choose their products that I like but their para one is excellent it's mimosa pudica and um it, mimosa pudica is a seed so it's quite gentle it acts like a soluble fiber so it can actually help with people's gut function as, as well as being an antiparasitic. And then of course, there's the antiparasitic herbs like black walnut and clove and wormwood. And there's a bunch of different formulas out there like that. Um, constipation overall, I would say, well, constipation has a number of different uh, causes, but constipation overall is something that I have seen. Some of my patients have constipation, some have diarrhea, some have alternating back and forth. Um, but the things I found most helpful for constipation other than increasing dietary fiber, um, would be, you know, taking magnesium at night is a nice, safe, natural option. Um, vitamin C can have the same effect a bowel tolerance. You know, sometimes if you take too much vitamin C, you'll get diarrhea and that's sometimes we use it that way. And then I've also used like an oxidized magnesium called oxy powder that I like. 
Um, I'm not crazy about Cellcore's bowel mover as an everyday thing. It does have some um, stimulant laxatives in it, which is a bit of a concern for me on a regular basis because you don't want the bowels to get sort of dependent on that to be able to work. Um, finally, then in terms of digestion, we're seeing a lot more mast cell activation as well. And so mast cell responses can definitely impact digestive function. And um, mold is a big trigger for mast cell activation. Lyme is a trigger for mast cell activation as well. Um, but in those cases, we want to encourage people to look at a, a low histamine diet um, because some foods are high in histamines and some foods like will trigger histamines in the body. And so that is a possible thing to look at too, especially when someone's getting really reactive to a whole host of different foods. That tells me that there may either be a mast cell activation issue or just a leaky gut situation where, you know, the, the little molecules from the food are getting through the digestive tract before they're fully broken down because, you know, bigger chunks can go through. And, um, and that's just causing a lot of immune activation and reaction. So um, leaky gut is always secondary to something else. And if people talk about leaky gut as like this big thing, it's always secondary to something else. Um, so the trick is finding out what that something else is and kind of getting to the root cause. So that's, that's my little list of things that can impact gut function in chronic Lyme. It's by no means exhaustive, but that's some of the biggies that I see. Um, so we can, we'll take questions. We'll have a little bit of time at the end for questions. So um, I'm going to share my screen again and go back here. And then if anyone has questions about any of those things, we will we'll take those at the end. Okay. So we want to just give kind of like a, a bigger picture of, you know, the, the, the issue of Lyme disease too, and some of the challenges and, um, and some of, you know, the, the information that's out there. And this, so this is from the American Pharmacists Association. Um, and that's very recent, Monday, April 24th, 2023. So this is very recent and talking about recovery of children from Lyme and, um, you know, the conclusion that, children, more children with Lyme recover from their symptoms within six months of treatment. So I definitely agree that children tend to respond to treatment better. I just think they haven't been infected as long, even if they were inf infected since birth. Um, they just haven't had as many years to become immune suppressed and for all the collateral damage of, of things that can happen to adults that have been sick for years. This is, um, this is a chart that shows annual cases of Lyme disease in the US. And so you can see here in the darker green is the number of CDC reported cases. And then the lighter green is the CDC estimated total diagnosed cases. So things to notice are just, you know, the, the massive growth over the years of cases and estimated cases of Lyme, but more importantly, like, they're actually finding, they're reporting 10% of estimated cases. So that's a 10% success rate just in diagnosis. That's not even talking about treatment. That's just assessment, evaluation, diagnosis. So all of these people, these are people in the lighter green bands. These are people that have gone undiagnosed that are estimated that have probably been doctor to doctor told that, you know, there's nothing wrong with them. Their labs look great. It's all in their head. You have fibromyalgia, like 
the everything but diagnosis and effective treatment is in those really, really tall green bands. And the darker green at the bottom is just people who have the opportunity to get treatment. So the estimate is in North America, 428,400 per year cases misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. So this is why we have such an epidemic of chronic Lyme because it's just not getting it's just not getting caught in the first place. And you know, to be fair, not everyone who has Lyme even recalls a tick bite. And certainly not everyone who got a tick bite has the classic bullseye rash that might alert you to a to an acute situation. So it's, you know, it's a tricky it's a tricky situation and calls for need for more effective testing and more effective like education of practitioners. So how did we get here? What happened? Like, how is this happening? So poor primary, poor primary care diagnostic skills, the magic bullet fallacy. So the poor primary care diagnostic skills is not only doctors not being able to recognize, you know, not even the early symptoms of acute Lyme, but recognize some of the risk factors. Like, yes, I was hiking last week and now I've got the flu and my joints hurt and I've got headaches or you know, if someone said they did get a tick bite, then, you know, a, a primary care docs will often say, okay, well, let's run a test. Well, if you got a tick bite a week ago, those antibodies probably haven't mounted yet. They haven't, so you're not going to necessarily get an effective test at that point. We also know that the testing that's approved by the CDC, like your general lab core um, quest testing for Lyme is not nearly sensitive enough to, to be trustworthy. Um, and then the weird thing with primary care is just their unwillingness to even consider Lyme. And I've had plenty of patients who asked their doctor about Lyme. I said, I've got a tick bite. I'm concerned. Da, 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 da. Can I have antibiotics? And they've been shot down emphatically like, no, there is no Lyme here or it's not Lyme or even people who in earlier phases have had a positive lab result, like their doctor does run a Lyme test and it comes back positive and they're told, oh no, that's a false positive. That's wrong. You don't have Lyme. It's like, there's just this refusal to acknowledge Lyme as a possibility. So that's like, that's, that's a problem right there. We then have the magic bullet fallacy, right? Oh yes. Well, 10 days or 14 days of doxycycline is all you need. And that will hundred percent treat it. And you know, and all done. And I wish it were that easy. I mean, I have had people who've been treated with short courses of antibiotics who are still symptomatic at the end and they were denied further antibiotics. Um, but just, you know, 14 days of doxy is going to cure everything Lyme, early Lyme for everybody is a fallacy. It's just not, it's just not there. So the IDSA guidelines the, the IDSA stands for Infectious Disease Society of America. Their guidelines um, are really very, very problematic. And that's one of the reasons that chronic Lyme is so controversial and so politicized. So their guidelines state that Lyme is hard to contract, that it's easy to diagnose. And as we said in the magic bullet, you know, fallacy that it's easy to treat. And those things are incorrect and they're very, very, very misleading. And that has been so problematic for so, so many people. And it's their standard of care and their treatment guidelines that keep us stuck 
in the chronic Lyme world because they direct what the majority of medical practitioners will do and what they will believe. And so when other practitioners go out of outside of their standards of care, firstly, it's a risk. Um, and they just, they're not trained. They're not trained for chronic Lyme. The IDSA states that all Lyme is treatable with a short course of antibiotics. And their guidelines say, I'm paraphrasing, but their guidelines say anything beyond that is sort of psychosomatic. Anything beyond that is in their head. And we know that's not true. We know that there is persistent infection. And so it's it's very misleading because it sets the stage for, you know, not only for the controversy and therefore within practitioners, like having to be outside of the box of the IDSA guidelines, but it also means that there's many, many thousands of people walking around out there with massive health issues that they're not, have, again, not getting any answers for. So we need to look at how to get out of here. Like we've got to get up, we've got to get our boxing gloves on, right? And 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 get beyond that because that is not helping people. There are too many people suffering because of that whole system that is not allowing for accurate diagnosis and treatment. And so that's kind of where we're at with our Lyme Academy and why we're on such a mission. Because there are practitioners out there who are called to step up and learn about this. There are practitioners out there that want to help people. There are practitioners out there that would do more, even if it was just, you know, I, I can't treat you for Lyme, but, you know, I know where to send you. Or at least knowing, like, why the testing in the standard labs, LabCorp, Quest, et cetera, is so inadequate. And where to go to get, like, the most accurate testing positive possible. There's no one lab test for Lyme that's 100% sensitive, 100% accurate. But we know which ones are good and which ones are not. We need to look at the difference between different co-infections. Different co-infections act differently within the body. They require different treatments. Okay, We look at naturopathic treatment. We look at allopathic treatment, antibiotic protocols. How do we put together antibiotic protocols that actually work? How to mitigate Herx reactions? And then, you know, we teach on the context of Lyme, how to empower patients, how to educate. Um, and we are really, our whole purpose is to train practitioners to be able to help more people. That's really the bottom line of what we want to do. So we have a training coming up on May 10th. It's a four-hour training. It's practitioner-oriented. Um, I'll let McKay give you a little bit more details about that. There's the link for it there. Um, but we're really excited about that. And like I said, we've just got to, we've got to train up an army. We really, we really have to train up an army. So we will be able to take a few questions here. Let me stop sharing my screen so I can look at the chat. So McKay kindly has summarized the points. Um, we have two questions. One okay. is about false positives yep. and, and testing. Yep. And then the second one is about the challenge of treating all of the above. Right. 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 Lyme, mold, SIBO, you know, he says yeah. mold versus SOT. And I don't know what SOT is. Uh, oh, I didn't, I didn't there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so in terms of testing, so like I said, there's no Lyme test that's 100% accurate, 100% sensitive. However, there are some labs that are better than others. Now, I speak quite frankly about this, and it's not always a popular opinion, but the two main labs I'm seeing right now are Igenix and Vibrant, Vibrant Wellness. And I have always used Igenix. In my opinion, they're a gold standard in the field. And if anything with Igenix, their testing has evolved. So now they offer immunoblot testing for Borrelia and Bartonella and Babesia and tick-borne relapsing fever. So I believe it's evolved and become more sensitive. But my concern historically was always like, is this sensitive enough? Are we catching these cases? And, you know, we know that Lyme is a clinical diagnosis backed up with lab work. So whatever we find on the labs, we also have to match that with our patient and say, okay, does this make sense? Does this seem to be, is this right? And, um, and that's true for co-infections as well. And I have developed a process over the years called the co-infection provocation. And I'm going to, I'm going to teach it within the four-hour training within our masterclass um, of how I decipher co-infections alongside lab work. So in my view, Igenix is still the lab of choice. Vibrant Wellness has come out with a panel um, that is very much cheaper than Igenix. So it's a draw for a lot of people just on the financial basis. However, they find... I'm still struggling to put this accurately into words. My concern with their testing is that they come up with tons of IgG markers and that even if a marker is in the moderate range, they will count it towards a positive, towards the positive diagnosis. So I am concerned with Vibrant that if you look on their summary page that everyone looks like they have Lyme. Now, that statistic of the studies found 57% of positive tests were inaccurate. According to who, I would ask, what study, where did that come from? How did that, they get that data? Um, is that just part of the IDSA you know, push to say that you know, they discredit hygienics, they discredit any lab that looks at Lyme testing? So I don't know. I mean, I don't know about that number or how they deduced that. Um, I know for me, historically as a practitioner, I have seen way more false negatives than false positives. Um, and I've also found that Igenix continues to be the most reliable lab for testing. Um, Okay, so yes, Lyme mold, SIBO, yes, yes, Colin, all of the things. Um, well, to some extent, I mean, start with diet. That's that's where I always start. Start with food. Try to remove things that are making things worse for you. So, um, you know, gluten, inflammatory foods, you know, making sure like IgG food sensitivity testing if possible, like just really cleaning up the diet um, is you know, is the best thing. And people have to have a sense of responsibility around that, right? Like if we're teaching people and I'm usually fairly moderate, like I don't give people this diet of like, go home and eat these five things forever. Um, we've got to be realistic. And I was actually talking to a patient yesterday who's 
has another practitioner that wants her on this very, very, very restrictive elimination diet. She's already restricted in foods and it's already messing with her head. And, um, you know, so there's different, there's different layers of complexity, but generally speaking, when I work with someone, it's like, okay, diet food first, what can we do there? Depending on the patient or client budget, whether you could do some testing for um, like a microbial organic acid to evaluate candida, um, just to try and kind of get the priorities down. And then the thing I try to do is overlap treatments. So I'd be looking at, okay, what could I do for this person that um, could help if it was Lyme and mold and SIBO? Like some of our natural antimicrobials and antifungals are brilliant and have more crossover for the different aspects of what's going on. Right. So where if we're treating Lyme with antibiotics, that's not really going to help with mold or candida or SIBO. If we're treating SIBO with rifaximin, it's not going to help with you know anything else. Some of our more natural agents can help with mold and SIBO and Lyme and you know all the things at the same time. So I'm always looking at how can I choose things to address or to help the most number of factors. So potentially like maybe a rotation of oil of oregano and garlic and uva ursi or like berberine. Some of these things that are broad, a bit more broad spectrum. That's why I do love the biocidin and the biocidin LSF. They're very, very popular formulas and I use them and I like them. Sometimes I feel like they're not powerful enough um, to get the whole job done, but then we can come in with more individual things as for example, the ones I just mentioned, maybe even do them in rotation. So it's not like too much for somebody. Um, but that's what I try to do as much as possible. Like even just with Lyme and mold in general, like what are the common, where, where are the common grounds? Okay. So glutathione, typically helpful for both. Uh, phosphatidylcholine, typically helpful for both. We need membrane repair. We need mitochondria working. Um, binders, typically helpful for both. So just try and find the common grounds and then, um, and always just remember that you can do things in rotation so that it's not so much and so overwhelming for someone. Um, uh, let's see, uh, four to five over six, yeah. Mold versus SOT to get the lime first. Mm. Um, mold versus lime is always the big, the big question. I personally don't have a strong view in one has to be done for the other. I had, um, I did actually a consult, clinical consult uh, yesterday, whenever it was, with a practitioner who was working with a family that um, mother, father, and son, and they all had various Lyme things going on. The mum and the son obviously were fairly consistent. The, the dad had some things and then a couple more things. But their mold levels, especially this little four-year-old boy, the mold levels were off the charts. And they know sources of mold in their house and they're you know, working on that and remediation. But that was a case I looked at and I was like that you have to get those mold levels down before you can even get to the Lyme piece. Um, in other people, I try and chip away at both at the same time um, because sometimes if you're like, oh, I'm going to wait till I fix the mold to start on the Lyme, well, that could be forever. And you may not fix the mold if the Lyme is grappling down on the immune system, right? So I typically will try and chip away at, you know, things those two at the same time, if possible. And again, utilizing things that sort of cross, that find the common ground. Um, SOT, I like, we do SOT in our clinic. 
Um, we've been doing it for about six months. So we're sort of fairly young to it, I guess. Um, and so, uh, I don't know. I Again, I, I, there's no hard or fast rule about that. SOT can be done in conjunction with, um, it can be done in conjunction with anything else. Like, so with antimicrobials, with mold treatment, just not, um, not within two weeks. There's certain things that have to be off for two weeks before SOT and then before the blood draw and before the infusion, they have to be off antimicrobials. But other than that, SOT is not something that has to be done in a vacuum, which is kind of what I like about it. Um, so it's hard to know, but you can definitely be doing SOT while working on mold and other things because it's working very uniquely. You know, SOT works to disable the ability of the bacteria to replicate. And so that's why you can also do antimicrobial therapy at the same time, because you've been killing off the bugs that are there, stopping the ones being able to replicate. So you just run out of bugs quicker, right? You get rid of them quicker. Um, and that's a six month process. The SOT works in the body for six months. So that's all a bit of a process. So I, I would say consider doing both along the way. Um, McKay, this is one I might defer to you. Is ELISA technology or mass spectrometry better for mycotoxin urine testing? I don't know I the was, answer to that. I was just testing, uh, uh, typing a response. Right. Every mycotoxin. So, so this is secondhand information. I'm not the expert. Our expert is Emily Givler, who's not on a call with us, but I'll, I'll speak for her. And then if you just drop your email in the chat, I'll make sure I send this out to you. If anybody else wants it, please also drop an email in the chat and I'll, I'll get it to you. You can send it to me privately if you don't want to have anybody else see it. Anyway, so backing up, each test for mycotoxins has its limitations. So you need to know what those limitations are and why you're testing. So sometimes a combination of testing is the best way if, if money is no object. Otherwise, you have to understand what you're testing for and how you're testing for it. The other, so for example, excretion testing uh, versus antibody testing. And the excretion test, so the, the argument is I want to test what's actually in the body versus what the immune system reacted to at some point. You know, even though you're testing IgG and IgM, it, it's not necessarily what's actually there and being excreted, excreted, right? It could be an old reaction that you're seeing the, the, the antibodies there for. But the problem with the excretion tests is that they need to be excreted. So then you get into provocation. So a lot of times what we'll see with excretion tests is that they get worse after actually treating for the mycotoxins. And that is good news because it means now that the body's mobilizing the mycotoxins and ex excreting them outside of the body. So you can't just take an excretion test and assume that it's a toxicity, which is one of the issues people who hate excretion tests don't like. So, you know, it's, it, it's one of these things where you got to be a smart practitioner to understand exactly how you're testing, what you're testing for. You know, if you clinically are sure and you're just using the test to convince a patient or a client, then, you know, that, then you might go for a cheaper option uh, and, and it may not influence how you're testing. However, that said, 
the different mycotoxins are handled through different phase two pathways. So there are five phase two pathways that we know about. There are six in total and five that we knew, know were used for, uh, for mycotoxins. And the GSH, the glutathione conjugation pathway is just one of them and it's maybe the least known. So we also have a methylation pathway. We have a glucuronidation pathway, which is heavily used by mycotoxins. And I'm trying to remember the other off the top of my head. I'm not going to be able to do it. Uh, I apologize. So identifying the mycotoxins is a big help when you're trying to support the specific pathway, especially if you're laying genetics on top of it and you've discovered, okay, there is a methylation issue. There is a glucuronidation pathway issue. There is a glutathione pathway issue. So it, it get, this is where things get really interesting. We're back to the chess match. There's no simple answer. It's like, you've got to make your opening move and then see how the body's reacting to it and how your patient or client's reacting to it. Uh, to be quite and Christine is also asking, would a combo of urine mycotoxin testing along with mold IgE allergy blood testing be a better for higher accuracy? It, it can be. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I would, I would also add to that because I mean, they are slightly different things. Like you can be allergic to mold without being mold toxic. So there's many, many people who have mold allergies. It doesn't mean they have mycotoxin illness. So what I would maybe consider if, if I could do all the testing, I mean, maybe yet yeah, there's a place for IgE in there as well, but then I would consider some of like the more shoemaker type markers like MMP9, um, TGF beta, C4A, some of those things to show like the neuroinflammation as well. Um, and they are standard lab core tests. You just got to be careful because if people's insurance do, do, doesn't cover them, then they get really costly. So they're typically insurance billable, but we've had a couple of nasty surprises where insurance didn't like them. And it was, um, it was a pretty hefty bill, which, you know, LabCorp then discounted to make it manageable for the patient, but which labs offer those shoemaker tests in Canada? Oh gosh, I don't know. Um, so here in the US, like our big commercial labs offer them, like the, the LabCorp and Quest Diagnostics and like the really huge ones. But you've, I'm assuming that you've looked there. I don't know. Um, so Vibrant, is that one of their panels that they've postponed? Vibrant has a panel with all those markers, Vibrant Wellness. Not a huge Vibrant Wellness fan, but I did see those markers. I'm not a huge fan of their Lyme testing, which is what I said earlier, but... Um, and for mycotoxin, urine mycotoxin, Christina, I don't remember which one, which lab uses which system. I will just report that Neil Nathan, who is, you know, very no, wi widely known in the line mold MCAS world, um, has a very strong preference for real-time labs. And I know Great Plains Lab urine mycotoxin testing got very popular because when they first came onto the scene, they were about a third of the cost of real-time labs. And so they made it much more accessible to people. And I've liked the Great Plains test, um, but Neil Nathan feels very strongly about it. And I, I don't have the reasoning why, but if you were interested, you might want to dig around and see if you can um, find something from him on that. Um, but he said he's been asking Great Plains for a certain change in their test methodology for over a year now and they say they're going to do it and then they haven't done it or whatever. So anyway, for what it's worth, that's the, that's third party reporting, but that's, I do respect Dr. Nathan. I think he's a really smart dude. 
Okay. That was super in depth. So if you hung till the bitter end there, you are indeed committed to your health and committed to learning. And just as a quick aside, also, if you're still around, maybe you're a practitioner, Dr. Nicola and I are hosting a four hour Lyme practitioners training next Wednesday from 4.30 Eastern time to 8.30 Eastern time. And we have a scholarship available for listeners of Lyme Ninja Radio. So just send an email to me at McKay at Lyme Ninja Radio, and I will send you the info on that. So that's coming up in a week. So that's May 10th from 4.30 Eastern time until 8.30. It's going to be an awesome training. We're going to go through our Lyme Academy curriculum, go beyond Lyme disease. And that's a wrap for this evening. Thank you all for listening so much. We'll see you next week. We won't go as in-depth as this week, but you never know what you're going to get here at Lime Ninja Radio. Always an adventure, always a ride, and thanks for listening. We know you have a lot of other options out there, and we're honored, we, meaning I, am honored that you have listened and given me your time and attention. It's for a good cause. Join me, be part of the solution, and I'll see you soon.